This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. So this is the third week into our series. So let me kind of recap just a little bit. First Sunday, we saw that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's up in the city of Susa. And some people come to Nehemiah and they tell him about the terrible state of his city of Jerusalem. The city that, that represents the one true God was in disrepair. And so Nehemiah uh, confesses sins, his own sins, the sins of the people before the Lord. And so we talked about confession and we, we, we saw how God put it in his heart to go back to Jerusalem and to rally the people and to lead them in this this building project in Jerusalem. So we looked at confession the first week, uh, and, and then uh, last week uh, we looked at the fact that we have to take action. And so we saw that Nehemiah acts. He, he goes to Jerusalem, and then the people commit to act. The people say, let us rise up and build. And so they step out in faith to do that. They take action. Well, whenever God begins to move in our lives, and we determine to take action for Him, then we can expect opposition. And that opposition ultimately comes from the powers of hell. Today we're going to see human opponents that come against the work of God. But always remember that our enemies are never human beings. They're, ultimately, our, our enemy is a supernatural enemy, the, the, the principalities and powers of, 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 of hell itself. So uh, we're going to talk about that kind of opposition today, which is very practical to us, because whether we understand it or not, every single one of us is involved in spiritual warfare with a supernatural enemy every day that we live. And we need to understand how to deal with that kind of opposition. I'm not going to read a text today because what we're going to do is cover parts of five chapters uh, today. And so I'm not going to read all five chapters, but we're, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground today and just follow along uh, as we go. But let's pray before we do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against your work. We thank you that you are sovereign and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. And we thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus is risen. Jesus reigns. He's on the throne. He's coming again. And you are so much more powerful than our opposition. Nevertheless, we need to understand how to deal with this kind of supernatural opposition in faith. Because Satan will always come against the work of God. Whenever you begin to move in, one of our, li in our lives or uh, in our church or in a particular area of the world, uh, the principalities and powers of hell are going to be stirred up. And we need to understand that. And we need to understand how to deal with it. And so speak to us now through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis once said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall, uh, fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, far and away in America and Western Europe, the error that people fall into the most is materialism. Because people in our culture tend to believe in what they can see and what they can touch. And they think it's somewhat unsophisticated to believe in something like the, the devil. And even as Christians, even though we, we believe in these things, I'm not sure how aware we really are that we do have this supernatural enemy who is built on harming us. That's why I, I love C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, because it's so practical. This guy, this young soldier, becomes a Christian at the beginning of the book, and the whole book is letters written between two demons about how they can trip him up and sabotage his faith. And, and there is this opponent that is seeking to do that to us. And the Bible speaks of him very clearly. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith. So what we're going to talk about today are some principles for doing that very thing, for resisting the opposition in faith. Now, the first thing we need to understand is this. The enemy always opposes the work of God. Look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10. Chapter 2 and verse 10. The Bible says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. They were the people that were living just to the north of Jerusalem. And Tobiah was uh, an Ammonite official who was in control of people that were living to the east of Jerusalem. And so these guys are not just sort of insignificant carping critics. They were powerful they were well-connected. They had lots of peoples and armies that were under them. They're very significant opponents. And the reason for their opposition to the rebuilding of Jerusalem is made very clear here in verse 10. It says it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They liked the status quo. They liked the fact that Israel was, un, that Jerusalem was unprotected and 
weak and they felt threatened by the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, there is really no reason for that because Nehemiah is not planning on any kind of, uh, he's not planning on conquering territory. They just want to rebuild Jerusalem for the glory of God. But these, these officials, these ungodly officials feel threatened by what is going on and so they, they oppose the work of God. And of course, you know, today, whenever, whenever satanic strongholds are threatened, the powers of hell just go ballistic. And that's why when the gospel begins to penetrate in areas of the world where Satan has had people just in a stranglehold for years, and, and he may have used false religion to keep them in a stranglehold, he may have used totalitarian governments to keep them in a stranglehold, but Satan has just had these people in chains for generations, and then the gospel shows up, and people begin to get saved, and the powers of hell go nuts. And that's why you see the, just this intense persecution of believers happening in areas of the world that have just been under uh, Satan's grip for, for so long. The same thing applies to you know, churches. When we, the church really gets on the move for God, uh, the powers of hell are stirred up. When, when, when God begins to work in your life, and you really begin to gain ground spiritually, do you think that's going to be unopposed by the enemy? Now, he's he's going he's gonna to throw everything he has at you. Um, and so we see that happening. The other reason for their opposition is that they're anti-God and anti-Semitic. Uh, they are opposed to the one true God. They are opposed to the people that represented the one true God, uh, the Jewish people. And so they are, they are stirred up because um, they, they hate God and they hate his, his people. Now, notice that the opposition begins before Nehemiah ever sets foot in Jerusalem. <laughs> He's not even there yet. And already these opponents are coming against him. And, and lesser men than Nehemiah would have turned back when they heard about such powerful opponents uh, coming a, a, against them. I mean, Nehemiah could have said, you know what, I had it pretty good back in Susa. I was cupbearer to the king. I was part of the royal court. I mean, I had a nice, comfortable uh, life, and maybe I should just turn around and just go back to, to Persia. Um, but he doesn't do that. He goes to Jerusalem, and he rallies the people. And we saw last week that they say, at the end of verse 18 in chapter 2, they say, let us, what, rise up and build. But... When they say this, the opponents are even more stirred up. And so we, we look at verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Well, now we're introduced to a third opponent. That's Geshem here. Geshem was, again, incredibly powerful. In fact, he was the most powerful of all three of these opponents. He controls the Arabian tribes to the south of Jerusalem. Okay, so now what do we have? You have Sanballat, 
who controls the tribes and armies to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's controlling the people and, and uh, armies to the east of Jerusalem. Now you have Geshem, who's controlling armies and people to the south of Jerusalem. And what do you have to the west of Jerusalem? The Mediterranean Sea. Okay, They have nowhere to go. They are completely surrounded. But is Nehemiah freaking out? No. No, he's not. Why? Why? Because he knows the kind of God that he worships. Verse 20, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, and you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You know, I'm reminded here of uh, something that happens um, in, in 2 Kings, and it's when Elisha and his servants are being chased by the, the king of Syria who's trying to kill them. And so they're in the city of Dothan, and they wake up in the morning, and Elisha's servant walks outside and he looks up and there's the enemy forces that are just ringing the hills around the city. They're totally surrounded by these enemies. And then Elisha walks out and he sees all these enemies that are surrounding them. But Elisha sees something else. Let's take a look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 6. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Look, when we feel like that we are, are oppressed and that we are surrounded by, by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and when we feel like that the challenge is so great, and we feel like we're encompassed and surrounded uh, by opposition on every side, when, when Satan is just doing all kinds of things to trip us up, do you remember this? 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The forces of heaven are always greater. No matter what the enemy throws at you, God is so much stronger. And the Lord of heaven's armies has his forces that are surrounding you and protecting you. And they, he will never let go of you. He's so much greater. Just never, never forget that. Hold on to that. Now, we're not going to read chapter 3, but chapter 3 is beautiful. I encourage you to read it on your own. But here's what happens. I'm going to sum it up. Okay? Chapter 3, you have the building going on itself. They finally, they are, they are into the building. And so, here's chapter 3 in a nutshell. Chapter 3 is, it's talking about the rebuilding of the city 
And it's talking about all these people who came together to do that project. So it talks about this person built this part. And this family built this part. And these brothers built this part. And these people who had this set of skills worked on this part of the city. And these craftsmen and these people who had this part of the, this, these skills, they worked on another part. So it's just this beautiful example of teamwork as the people just come together and all of them are involved. All of them are doing their part in unity to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. On December 6th, 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor, America had the 17th largest army in the world. We ranked behind Romania at that point. We could deploy five fully armed divisions into the field. Germany at that point could deploy 180 divisions. We were unprepared. Nobody wanted war. Nobody was thinking about war on December 6th. And by the evening of December 7th, everything had changed. Recruiting offices stayed up 24 hours to accommodate all the people that were volunteering to serve. The next day on December 8th, every American woke up with one question. What can I do to help? And everybody got involved. Even kids got involved. I mean, there were paper drives and rubber drives and metal drives and grease drives and, and everything else to try to support the war effort. There was rationing was imposed, strict rationing. People didn't care. They were all in for their country. Heavy taxes were imposed. They, didn't get, they, they, they gladly paid them because they were, they were all in for their country. You couldn't get a new car. Detroit wasn't making cars anymore. They were making planes and military vehicles and tanks. Everything was just channeled to support this effort. By August of 1945, at the end of the war, uh, this is what America had produced. Not even four years later, 310,000 planes, 124,000 ships of all types, including the launching of 147 new aircraft carriers, 100,000 tanks, 2,400,000 military vehicles of all types, 12.5 million rifles, and 41 billion rounds of ammunition. I mean, this, this country's energy, just with everybody working together, just accomplished something great. You know, when we think about our building project here, and you think about our, the monthly payment on our project, $17,500. Think about the people in our church, the number of people in our church, the resources in our church. Look, if we get together on this and all of us is involved in this, this is something that we can do. So I want to tell you something. World War II was a, was a great cause. It was a just war that had to be fought. But the greatest cause on earth is the cause of Jesus Christ. I've seen men and women and boys and girls in this community and around the world come to know him 
Now, here's a second principle that we need to understand. Okay, it's this. The enemy opposes the work of God, but, but second, we must respond to that opposition with faith and focus. So let's, let's look over to chapter 4, chapter 4 of Nehemiah, and let's look there at verse 6. Nehemiah says, So we built the wall, <laughs> and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love that. The people had a mind to work. Do you ever notice that you can get more done in about 20 minutes when you're absolutely locked in and focused than you can in two hours when you're kind of like not completely in? You know, I, I tell, I tell uh, my, my kids, I tell uh, students, but it applies to anybody, no matter what you do, put away the phone and get in a zone, okay? Put away the phone, get in a zone. Listen, when you get in that zone, it's amazing what can be done, right? It's, it's, it's incredible. These people are in a zone. That's what it's saying here in verse 6. They had a mind of work. I mean, they were locked in and focused on this project. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And especially when you're doing it for God's glory, which everything that we do is for God's glory, the work that we do. Colossians chapter 3 and verses 24 and 23 and 24 uh, says this. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's what we, that's what we see here. Uh, we see this kind of focus for God's glory. Okay, let's look at uh, verses 7 through 9 of chapter 4. More opposition, right? The opposition is not going to just melt away yet. It says, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now, what we see here is the pattern that you see for the, all of the remainder of chapter 4. And, and that is that they, they, they prayed, but they were also very prepared in case these enemies tried to come into Jerusalem and to stop the work. And so they were praying, they were trusting in God, but yet part of their faith was a willingness to to trust God to enable them to defend the city if it came to that. And so look at verses, um, seven, uh, verses uh, 18 and, 17 and 18 of chapter 4. It says, Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. <laughs> so, <laughs> these people are praying, and they're working, and they're packing weapons at the same time. All right? but, but 
listen, part of trusting God in this situation, again, was a willingness to enable him, uh, a willingness to, to trust God to enable them to, de- to defend the city militarily if it, if it came to that. Now, you know, years before, their forefathers had not been willing to do that. They had gotten to the edge of the promised land and blinked. They refused to cross the Jordan River and to go into the promised land. Why? Because they did, they, God, had, God had said, I've given you the land, but you have to go in and, and take the land. And that's going to involve battles, but I'm going to give you the victory. Trust me. They weren't willing to trust God. They were not willing to step out in, in faith and trust God to give them the victory. And because of that, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness until that entire generation of cowards died out. But, but this... This, this generation, this, this people in Jerusalem, they are trusting God to enable them to defend the city. And so that's why they're, you know, they're praying, but yet they're armed at the same time because they know that part of faith is a willingness to, as we talked about last week, to act. And sometimes God, God gives us a dream God tells us to do something, and God, God, plants, God plants that dream in our hearts as we're praying. But then, when push comes to shove, the closer that we get to having to take action to make it happen, we pull back, and we play it safe. Let me tell you something. Satan is always going to try to get you to play it safe. But when God tells you to do something, just do it. And trust the Lord to give you the victory and to provide what you need. He will never fail. Never. So, we must respond to opposition with faith and focus. Here's the third principle. We must refuse to be distracted. Now, let's look at chapter 6. Chapter 6, and let's look at verses 1 through 3. Chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim on the plain of Anno. But they intended to do me harm. See, it's just a trick. They're trying to distract Nehemiah, lure him out, and kill him. But what does he, what does he say? Verse 3. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? See, not only is Satan a deceiver, but he is also a distractor. He's always trying to make us lose focus and distract us from what God has called us to do. And the enemy can use all kinds of things to do that. I mean, he can, certainly he can use sin and temptation 
to, to do that. Um, but sometimes he uses things that are not evil in and of themselves, but they're just, they're just, used, they're just misused. And they, they distract us and they pull us away from the things that are really important. In our culture, I mean, I think about TV. I mean, gosh, it's not, it's not evil in and of itself, but it can be so misused. It is so misused by, by most people in our culture. We can, do, we can be distracted and waste so much time. Um, and, of course, our, our devices. I mean, what have we, we've gone in 10 years in our culture We've gone from a culture where people were walking, walking down the street and looking around them to people walking around and going like this. Now, now think about the implications of that. I'm, I'm all for technology, okay? But I just saw this week that the average American checks their phone between like 220 and 250 times a day. And it averages out to about every 4.3 minutes. We're checking the phone. Now, what does that do? Okay, that means that our attention span is lessened. And it means that it's hard to sustain focus on things that really matter. It's just something to be aware of because it impacts us spiritually. We must refuse to be distracted. And here's a fourth principle. Faithfulness brings glory to God. Let's look at chapter 6 and verses 15 and 16. So, the wall was finished. It's done. The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. So they finished the project, which was wonderful, but that wasn't the most wonderful thing. The most wonderful thing about finishing the project was that it brought glory to God because at this point their opponents are like, whoa, this, this Yahweh that these Jews worship. There's, there's something, there's something to him. God, we see his power that is at work in this situation. And so what it does is it draws attention, you know, not just to the building of Jerusalem. It draws attention to the one true God. That's the point of it all. You know, we, we talked a moment ago about the time when the children of Israel got to the edge of the Jordan, the edge of the promised land, and they, they, they shrank back in fear, and they had to wander for 40 years. But what happened after those 40 years? The previous generation of cowards that didn't trust God, they all died out. And what happened? New generation, and they came once again to the edge of the Jordan edge of the promised land, ready to go in. And before they went in, what did they do? They sent spies into Jericho. Spies go into Jericho. They encounter there a lowly Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab takes them in, and she hides them. And they're like, why are you being so nice to us? And she says, because I have heard about your God. 
I have heard that your God parted the waters of the Red Sea for you to leave Egypt and the, and the cross on dry ground. I heard about how your God made the water stand up on both sides for you to go across on dry ground. And I want to know more about your God. And Rahab becomes a believer in the one true God. And Matthew 1 tells us that Rahab becomes an ancestor of Jesus. And aren't you glad that Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to earth for us? But when he stepped out of heaven and came to earth for us, the, the waves of our sin came crashing down on him and on the cross he was drowned beneath the weight of our sins but he rose from the dead and he reigns today and he's calling us to step out in faith for him for his glory let's pray together father we thank you so much for jesus who left heaven and came to us who gave his life. We thank you for Jesus who allowed all of the opposition to descend on him and bore our sins in his own body on the tree and rose from the dead that we might have life. We pray that we would be faithful to present ourselves and all that we have, all of our resources, as living sacrifices to Christ for his glory and honor and for the fame and renown of his name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your Son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in His finished work for me. In His name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as His beloved child, His very own son or daughter. Just imagine Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father. And you are His child. You say, I love Him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. 
If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.